You all may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to those as well who are visiting, or I should say watching online this morning and joining us that way. We start our our season of Advent officially together, and Pastor Matt did a great job last week um, priming the pump for why we do Advent um, historically, why the church has embraced this time of year as a fruitful way of preparing our hearts uh, to celebrate the greatest gift God has ever given in His Son, Jesus, whom we celebrate at Christmas. And one of the before? What more can we glean about these things? And I I would say on a human level, I remember a statistic I grew up with uh, being that you'd have to hear something seven times in order for it to really stick with you. And that doesn't even necessarily... Oh, am I not working very well? I mean, you're working well. The mic's not working. Oh, thanks. Should I take this off or is it... It's good. It looks good, but I just could take it off. Okay. Test, test. Test. I think this was what was working. Um, uh, the statistic uh, that studies had, um, had come up with for how many times you needed to hear something in order for it to actually stick with you was like seven times. And that wasn't even necessarily uh, in, a, in a way in which you own deeply, like a, a transformative way, but just under, like understanding the concept, right? And in more recent years, I can't remember where I heard it, but it was credible at the time. The more recent studies show that it's like 33 times that you have to actually hear something before it actually sticks with you and kind of embeds itself in you with understanding. Um, and then there's a whole other level when it comes to understanding concepts like hope, peace, joy, and love that actually like flow out of an infinite being, God. And so even as I was studying hope this past week, It was just the the richest time uh, and the deepest that I've come to understand. Uh, And and that even still felt like scratching the surface what what it means to be a people of hope and where that hope actually comes from. And so we will probably do these themes for many years to come, interspersed with um, some alternatives along the way. But I hope that you, different sense of hope there, but I hope that you find this to be a profitable and fruitful series for you in Advent, preparing your hearts for Christmas time. We're going to use a consistent roadmap for all of these uh, themes, and it's simply this. We're going to look at a definition for which each one is, uh, for what each is, so for hope, what is hope? We're going to look at a basis for it in terms of what is it rooted in, so what is hope rooted in? We're going to look at a means for growing in each of these themes, so how do we grow in our hope? And then we're going to look at um, the fruit of that growth. What, what would be the outcome in our lives as pilgrims following after Jesus um, from being a people who are growing in hope? So each week, a definition, a basis, um, a means for growth, and then the fruit of that growth as it plays itself out in our lives. So there'll at least be that consistent framework as we look at these four different themes. Would you pray with me? And then we'll dig right into hope. Father, we thank you for the chance to gather as your people Help that not to be lost on us today, Lord, that we aren't just individuals who coincidentally were drawn here, but um, we are members of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, 
the family of God, called by you, called, the called out ones, called to you, but called together as well, Lord. And um, so it's a privilege and a blessing to be gathered together. We all each do have our own pilgrim journeys. We're, they're not experienced independently either. I thank you that we get to help bear one another's burdens. But each person, Lord, as you know all too well, comes here with their own separate burdens today. Um, I pray that you administer to them by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word and through what you have to teach us about hope and that you would renew hope today for people here who need that, which is all of us. And so we pray these things in, in, the, in the hope that your name would be glorified and the hope that our joy would be uh, made more robust in you and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So, There are different ways, different angles, nuanced ways you could define hope, but the one I'm going to use for today is that hope is anticipating a future that is better than the present. Hope's anticipating a future that is better than your present. And now there's going to have to be gaps filled in there, and we'll do that as we go throughout, but here's one of the things that that definition, though, um, implies, and that is that if we're hoping for something in the future, that means it's not, that's better than our present, that means it's not here yet, right? And so necessarily, there is a waiting that's involved in this definition of hope. And in fact, the words for hope that we have most prominently used in the Old Testament actually mean their most basic definition is to wait. You actually see that used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. So uh, to hope is to wait well. And to wait well is to hope. And so the two words that you have uh, in the Old Testament most prominently to, that are translated as hope are yahal and kava. And they're pronounced more gutturally than that, but I'll... Yahal and kava, all right? So there, you heard it once. And even that, I probably didn't do well. But, and here's what each of them means. So yahal is a word that means to wait for. And when it's used outside of this ultimate sense of hope that we're talking about as God's people during Advent... It's used in instances such as when Noah was waiting at the top of the mountain for the floodwaters to recede, to wait for, yahal. Kava, the other word that's used for hope in the Old Testament, is a feeling of tension or expectation while you're waiting for something to happen. Kav, the first part of that word, actually refers to a cord. And when you pull that cord tight, it creates a tension and it's going to be there until it's released, either because it's pulled so tight that it breaks or because there's a release on that tension. And so this is the kava, that tension. And in the Old Testament, it's used in agrarian contexts, right? It's used uh, in relation to a farmer who's waiting with this tension for the morning dew to come the next day, the much needed moisture to be able to give the ground water so that the crops can grow. Or in the broader sense of even the farmer who's waiting with tension, kavaing, for the crop to come at harvest time with a longer interval in between. Those are kind of the more day-to-day senses in which kava would be used. Both words have to do with waiting with an expectation for something to happen, anticipating a future of a kind that's better than the present. This is the idea of hope for God's people as well, in an ultimate sense. It's a future that we're looking forward to with a confidence that it will be better than our present. Now, there's a couple of things. Um, one of the things we have to do with these words, because they're words, hope, 
I mean, you heard me use it in different senses like two or three times already this morning, that have to be unpacked a little bit um, and, and then redefined. So two things that hope is not, biblically speaking. It's not wishful thinking, right? It's not I hope that the weather is going to be nice this weekend so that I can go through with my plans that I have. Um, in that case, that kind of hope is more of like a fingers crossed kind of a hope. Um, this would be the ideal outcome kind of a hope. And we may or may not have much confidence that it's going to come to fruition. The other thing that it's not to be confused with is optimism, right? Which is choosing to see in any situation how those circumstances could turn out for the best. So you have a fender bender and the insurance company calls and tells you that they're going to consider the car totaled and they give you more money than you probably could have sold it for, right? Like, you know, you're always silver lining, seeing the best in every situation, Optimism isn't a bad thing. It's actually a good quality in people. It's just not hope because the problem is eventually the circumstances you may find yourselves in may be so dark that there's no way for you to see optimistically the silver linings in it. So that's not hope either in in the sense we're talking about biblically. The key difference then is that Christian hope is not beholden to any circumstances. Or either a likelihood of something happening or silver linings, Christian hope is a sure thing based upon something that transcends the circumstances that you find yourself in. And we'll unpack that at length in a bit. A bit. So what I want to do now is I want to give you a vivid example for where God's people are in a situation where they, they, ha, they would have no hope based upon their circumstances if that's what hope was based upon. And yet, hope in the right sense becomes a powerful ingredient to perseverance and to joy in the midst of those circumstances. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the prophet Jeremiah and God's people in the southern kingdom, Judah, during the time of the Babylonian exile that we read about in the Old Testament. So here's first a little bit about who Jeremiah was. I just want to create some context. Really important prophet in the Old Testament. He was born around 650 BC or so. He was called to be a prophet around the age of 12 um, when Judah and Jerusalem was just on the brink of starting to go downhill significantly, morally speaking. He actually was called to be a prophet during the, the reign of King Josiah, who was a great king. But many of the kings that followed him um, when Jeremiah was a prophet ended up being kings that were leading God's people away from God. And at the beginning of that call on Jeremiah's life, God spoke to him these words that were implying, pregnant with this reality that his ministry was going to be extremely hard. Here were the words from Jeremiah 1, 9 to 10, Jeremiah's call. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms. And here's what he would have to do. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow to build, and to plant. So there would be a lot of hard, hard work that Jeremiah would have to do, plucking up, breaking down, destroying, overthrowing, because of Judah's godless ways. And again and again, Jeremiah would be warning God's people in the southern kingdom of Israel of the coming judgment uh, if they didn't repent from their sins. And some of those sins were things like idolatry, uh, where they were worshiping foreign gods, And just as like a brief sidebar, when you read the Old Testament scriptures in Jeremiah, it wasn't as if they'd wholesale rejected Yahweh. 
It's that they were having their cake and they were eating it too. They wouldn't reject wholesale the things of their God, but they also were kind of bringing alongside that the things that they wanted to indulge in of the foreign gods of the foreign nations around them. And that, that's convicting when you think about that. That gives you a different lens through which to consider your own journey. So there was idolatry, there was, but the most dominant theme of sin um, that just broke God's heart and gave him a righteous anger was the oppression of their own people. Israel's oppression, or Judah, the southern kingdom's oppression of their own people, and particularly the needy, the poor, the widows, and the orphans, and the foreigners. The people who were the marginalized and the outcasts that were being ignored at best and exploited at worst by God's own people. And Jeremiah continued to confront them again and again and warn, listen, he even named specifically the nation of ba- this relatively new world superpower of Babylon who just defeated the Assyrians. They are going to be God's instrument of judgment upon you if you don't repent. There's still opportunity, there's still time, but they will come and be God's instrument of judgment if you don't repent. But the people didn't listen. And for Jeremiah... The road would just get harder. People would plot uh, to kill him, um, even friends. Uh, he would be beaten. He would be put in stocks on one occasion. Um, even his fellow prophets and priests disagreed. I mean, if you're going to have collegiality and understanding and know, and, and know somebody gets you with anyone, it's going to be your, you know, people who work in the same field as you, right? But no, even all of them rejected him and plotted to kill him. And then the king at the time, the one after Josiah, Jehoiakim, who started to introduce all these idolatrous ways into Israel, um, he disagreed with everything. He rejected Jeremiah's prophecies, and then he threw him in prison, and so forth. It went on. It was a long, there's a reason why Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, though I should say that most of that weeping was actually the heart of God in him for his people who were wayward. But though um, it may have felt a long way off to Jeremiah, there was also a reason for hope in his call. I don't know if you caught those last couple of words at the end of verse 10. Jeremiah would also be called to build and to plant. There was hope. There was life that was on the horizon. Um, Though it probably felt a long way off to Jeremiah at this point. Now, I actually don't want to focus wholly on Jeremiah and his hardships so much. And I'll explain that in a moment. I rather want to focus on Judah itself, the people of the southern kingdom, the rebellious sinners whose sin resulted in their eventual captivity and exile in Babylon and the destruction of their homeland. That's who I want to focus on this morning. Because what I want you to see is that hope isn't just for guys like Jeremiah who have hardships, but it's all out there. It's the the brokenness of the world affecting, uh, affecting him but by and large, he was faithful. Not perfect, but, but he was faithful. I want you to see that hope isn't just for guys like Jeremiah. But that hope was for those whose circumstances were the result of a self-inflicted wound. That there was a rock-solid hope even for God's people who were in exile because of their own sin. And I want you to see that because there isn't a person in this room who can't relate to that. If we would agree with the Apostle Paul who said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's earned, right, the wages of that sin is death. Because there are some in this room today, inevitably, who you can believe, you have faith, there is a God and that that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And through Christ he will fix all that's 
been made, that's been broken. And he will make all things new. But you struggle to believe that you could be included in that because of what you've done in your life. You have a hard time forgiving yourself, not to mention believing God could forgive you for the mess that you've made of your life. So how could there be hope for someone like you? You may even call yourself a Christian, but functionally this is the way you're living. No joy, no hope. What I want you to see today is that you have a solid reason for hope. As solid as Jeremiah or any of the great saints even that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 11 a month ago. But right now, what you may feel like are God's people who are in captivity. You believe in him. You also recognize your own wrongdoing and culpability for your own sin and the broken circumstances that that has created in your life. You may even see it as God's discipline and believe him to be just in that. But you don't see beyond that to hope. And that's a hope that God wants you to have who fit that description this morning. Here's where we're going to go. So I introduced you to Jeremiah and the people of God who he was uh, ministering to during that era of Israel's history. I want to go to Lamentations. And you can find that on page 817 of those blue uh, Bibles in the pews if you want to turn there now. There won't be, or the scriptures may be on the screen behind me, but I'll be referring back to them throughout the time today. And Lamentations is a record of the way that God's people were feeling and thinking during their exile in Babylon. So eventually, you know, spoiler alert if you didn't know, they didn't repent initially. Um, after many, 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 many warnings, they continued their idolatrous ways and oppressive ways. And eventually Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took uh, most of the people into exile back into Babylon. And so Lamentations is a record of what they were feeling during their time there and experiencing And here's the thing, while no author is named, it's commonly believed to have been Jeremiah who wrote uh, the book of Lamentations. And in chapter 3 of Lamentations, Jeremiah gets himself into the shoes of his countrymen who are in exile, and he embodies their current grief and despair, as well as their surprising source of hope. And what we're going to read reads as one man's experience. Uh, But really, this one man represents those in exile who've gone through this journey of both the grief and despair and the hope. And so, first I want to read Lamentations 3, 1 through 20 uh, with you. And what this is going to do is it's going to capture the thoughts and feelings of God's people who know that their persistent rebellion against him has led them to this situation that they now find themselves in. And it's pretty brutal. As we reread this, you can almost viscerally feel their pain and their heartache uh, through these words. So Lamentations uh, 3, 1 through 20. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me to dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. 
He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So, pretty bleak, right? Pretty, pretty powerfully stark language about their total despair. He knows, this one who's embodied here in these words by Jeremiah, he knows his situation is because of his sin. He explicitly will acknowledge that later on in verse 42 of this chapter. He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't even pretend these consequences are just natural, but he acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign over them. And if hope were based upon circumstances, then it would be game over. Where could you find hope in these circumstances? There's no silver lining to be found in any of these circumstances themselves. There's just pain and discouragement. And yet, listen to what Jeremiah says next as he's speaking on behalf of the people. What he declares next is true for God's people in exile. It is true for you and me here today, too. God's people who have shot themselves in the foot because of their selfishness and arrogance and thinking that they knew better than God. There's a corner that's turned, starting in verse 21. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth into dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So even in the bleakest of circumstances, even the ones that we bring upon ourselves, there is a basis for hope. And that basis is the strongest basis for confidence in anything in the universe because it isn't based upon fickle circumstances which can change, which may never change on this side of eternity. It's based upon a person and knowing who that person is and what he is like. It's based upon the character of God, Christian hope. 
That's what hope is rooted in. So I want to share several observations with you now from verses 21 to 33, the second set of verses we just read, about the character of God and therefore why we can have hope, why we can anticipate a future that is better than the present that you may find yourselves in right now, no matter what you've done, no matter what circumstances you find yourselves in. So there's three things we're going to look at, and I'll say them up front just so you can kind of keep them in view. Number one, God is willing to save. Number two, he is able to save. And number three, he is faithful to save. So first, we see in verse 22 that he's a God of steadfast love and mercy, or the fact that he is willing to save. There's this word that you may be familiar with here, one of the most famous words in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, it's hesed, almost the equivalent of agape in the New Testament in terms of being this profound word for love that describes what God is like. And if I remember correctly, uh, it's the most commonly used um, word for an attribute for God in the Old Testament. More than any other descriptor, steadfast love, steadfast love. He's a God of steadfast love. And here's what it means. It's a love that has staying power. It's a love that's not out of obligation or duty. It's that God is willing to save us. He wants to extend his mercy to a sinful people. And it can also be translated as a loyal love or a faithful love. And there's a strong connection here to the covenant that God made uh, with Israel to be his people and for him to be their God, not out of obligation, but because he wants to. And there's an interesting, it's probably the wrong word for it, a profound, I think, alternate translation that will be given in pretty much any of your Bibles here, a footnote next to steadfast love. Or to this verse, verse 22, which says this. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. And that was helpful to me because it's, it's got me thinking about what God's love is like and a bit differently. Why are God's people not cut off here? Um, it, it, is it because God's fuse has just not run out yet? Is it because the, the people haven't reached rock bottom for their evil and wickedness? No. The reason God's people are not cut off is because of something to do with God, not something to do with them. That God is a God of steadfast love means that he always holds a posture of a willingness to extend mercy. Or, in other words, his mercy is never not available to you and I. So even crazy, rebellious Judah, now in exile because they had ignored God so many times before, and had been so selfish and greedy and wicked to those around them, even they were not cut off because of the steadfast love of the Lord. But then the question is, well, when would somebody be cut off? It doesn't say here, because of God's steadfast love, they will never be cut off. It says, because of God's steadfast love, we are not cut off. In other words, as long as we have breath in our lungs, the opportunity exists to receive mercy as readily as there is going to be a morning tomorrow. So the only time then that God's steadfast love gets cut off, when is that? It's when somebody refuses to repent. Somebody refuses to receive the mercy that God's posture is making available to us. In a sense then, that person would be cutting themselves off from the ever-flowing source of God's mercy. This person, this is the person for whom the Lord is not their portion, verse 24. They don't want God. They don't believe that they need God. 
But God's mercy is for anyone for whom the Lord is their portion, what it is that they desire and treasure the most. And by the way, it's for anyone uh, for whom you want the Lord to be your portion. I don't think it's by accident here that the author notes that it's his soul that declares the Lord to be his portion. Often my flesh fights against my soul's desires. Amen? Anybody else get that here? But at the deepest level, I want the Lord more than anything. Do you want the Lord more than anything? Do you want to want the Lord more than anything? Then no matter what you've done, you are not cut off from the steadfast love of the Lord. His mercy is available to you. If you don't want the Lord, if he's not your portion, then you're not going to go to him for mercy. So this is the first reason we have hope. It's nothing to do with our circumstances, but it has everything to do with God, with his steadfast love, which never ceases, his mercies which never come to an end and which are new every morning. So first, God is willing to save, but secondly, God is able to save. This has to do with his power to do something about our sin and our circumstances. Listen, for some, it's of little encouragement that God is willing to save from our sin and the consequences of our sin if you're not convinced that he's able to. So this is important. You may say to yourself, well, maybe after all the brokenness I've created for myself because of my sin, it's just too big of a mess for God to do anything about either in this life or the life to come. So I want you to skip with me down to verses 31 to 33 because here we see that God is able to save. Nothing can hold him back from doing that. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So some observations for you here. First of all, everything here is attributed to God start to finish, both the hardship of the circumstances they find themselves in, the exile, as well as their their ultimate deliverance from these circumstances, the exile that they're in. I could see someone saying this is figurative language. It feels to them like God's hands responsible for their circumstances. So they're using poetic words here to describe what it is that they feel, even though these are just purely natural consequences. But for consistency's sake, then, it would have to be figurative language as well, that the Lord will have compassion, that he would be the one to bring those circumstances and their suffering to an end. No. God's people are in exile because of their rebellion against him, but ultimately this passage attributes the exile, the consequence of that, to him. It also promises that his casting off will not be forever because of him. In fact, in Jeremiah 25, so we're going back to the book of Jeremiah now and his prophecies, Jeremiah relayed a prophecy from God that this exile would last for 70 years and that came to pass basically down to the day. That is God ultimately being in control of the story of redemption of his people from start to finish. Why does this matter? Why not just say that our troubles are just the natural cause and effect relationship, but that God can do something about it? Well, number one, because here and elsewhere, that doesn't seem to be what the scriptures are teaching. But number two, because if our afflictions are ultimately from him, then there is purpose even in the affliction, not just in the deliverance. 
that the God who knows the number of hairs on your head and of whom the Bible tells us not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his will, that if that is who our God is, then you can know with confidence that even in your affliction, God has his express purposes down to the detail in which he's moving forward his plan of salvation and sanctification in your life. You may say, well, I can't reconcile that level of responsibility for my circumstances to God. It would implicate him as evil. And he would say, in a response to that, verse 33, for he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men. See, it's not God's desire or preference to see his children suffer, but where, from his perspective of infinite wisdom, it ultimately will yield a greater good and a more glorious outcome, he will permit our suffering. There are a bunch of different ways in which verse 33 is translated in other translations, all of which are helpful in bringing about an understanding of who our God is here. I want to read a few of them for you. The Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it this way, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. The New English translation says, for he is not predisposed, right? His natural inclination is not to afflict or grieve people. The New Living Translation says, for he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. A couple of takeaways I want you to have here. For those of you who've already believed, God is ultimately in control of my suffering, my circumstances, my life. But that you also have a view of God as being callous in that and cold in that. Memorize this verse. God's heart is not to hurt, it's to heal. And secondly, and related, if God doesn't enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind, then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, why does he? And I just said it, because he knows that there's a healing, a repentance, a growth that can only happen through that suffering. And it may remain mysterious to you as to what those purposes and outcomes ultimately are, but that brings us to this crossroads. Do you trust him in that? Do you trust that he is able to deliver you from your suffering, both your sin and its consequences, if not now in this life, in the life to come? Do you trust that he's in control, that he has a plan, that he is good in all that he does, and that when he does afflict, it is not from the heart, but from a wisdom that is greater than ours. Do you trust that? That's what it means to trust that the Lord is able to save. And it's foundational for us to have a genuine hope for our future. If there's some possibility God is not completely in control, that hope is not secure. Then there's one last aspect to the character of God that's in view here. We've seen so far that he's willing to save his mercy. We've seen so far that he's able to save his sovereignty, but he's also faithful to save. In verses 22 and 23, which we've already read and talked about a little bit, I'll read it for you again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now we've talked about how God's love Uh, His steadfast love can also be translated a loyal love, a faithful love, that he's inclined to be faithful to the promise, the covenant promise he's made to be with his people because he wants to be with his people, with you, with me. 
But the kind of faithfulness I have in mind now has more to do with God's track record of faithfulness, his action, his resume, where he's proven again and again that he can and does deliver his people from their sin and their circumstances. And this kind of moves into the the framework of our Advent series for how do we cultivate these things? How do we cultivate hope? This is where we can begin to cultivate our hope, where we can start to answer the question of what does it mean for us to grow in hope? Because the answer is we look back in order to look forward. That's how you cultivate hope. We look back at God's faithful track record in order to look forward with hope, anticipating with confidence a future that's better than our present. When Jeremiah says at the turning point of chapter 3 here in verse 21, from that, that darkness and that despair to the hope, when he says there, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope, He's not conjuring up hope out of a vacuum here, in a a vacuum here. What he's calling to mind is his prior experience of knowing who his God is and what he's seen him do before again and again. That's what he's calling to mind here. And while he doesn't name a specific instance in these verses and lamentations, he's gone through this exercise before with God's people in Jeremiah in chapter 16. So we'll look there for a moment. Where had... There have been evidence before in Israel's history, many times, but where primarily had there been evidence of God's mercy and power and faithfulness before? Here's what Jeremiah says in chapter 16, 14 to 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So he's speaking of the Exodus here. It's already happened in Israel's history. But it'll be said instead, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So do you see what he's, do you see what he's doing here? He's referring to the Exodus from Egypt as an example of God's faithfulness to deliver his people from their sin and the circumstances of that sin in order to promote a hope to look forward to God doing that again in their current circumstances. And he's saying that soon they will have an example of God's deliverance once again in their life to sit alongside, perhaps even to replace in significance that example of the Exodus. But for now in this prophecy, he's calling the Exodus to mind to foster a renewed confidence in God's character as faithful, to do what he's promised so that they can endure in the circumstances that they currently find themselves in. And so this is the way that we cultivate hope. We cultivate hope by looking backward in order to be able to look forward with hope. Whether that be through looking at God's track record of faithfulness in the scripture, of which we have thousands of years of examples that we can draw from, or whether that's looking backward in order to look forward at his faithfulness in our own lives up to this point in your journey. How easy is it for us to spend our time worrying and being consumed by what's going to happen and how we're going to have the, the needs met that we have for tomorrow or a week from now or a year from now? rather than looking back at all the places in our lives where God has already been faithful to provide for our needs time and again, and oftentimes above and beyond. Sometimes I think that with all that could have gone wrong in my 42 years of life so far, it is nearly a miracle that I have a roof over my head, I have meaningful relationships, my basic needs taken care of, 
and in many cases, so much more even above and beyond that. And when I see that rightly, it's a testament to God's faithfulness in my life and encouragement that this same God holds my future as well as he does yours. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't hardships and suffering, but there's so much to look back on in our lives to commend God's faithfulness, to love you, that he loves you, that he's provided for you, to redeem you from your sin and your circumstances and mine. I have every reason to hope for a future that is better than my present. And by the way, what is the exodus that we as Christians look back upon? What is our equivalent? The prime example of God's faithfulness to triumph over sin and desperate circumstances, even to the point of death. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I know that we're in Advent right now, and we're supposed to be focusing upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But ours is a parallel journey to Judah while they were in their exile, awaiting with hope and anticipating the first coming of the Messiah, we are awaiting with hope and anticipating the second coming of our Messiah, Jesus, for when he will return to complete the work that he has begun in us. When our sin and the consequences of our sin will be fully eradicated and God will finally make all things new. The Apostle Paul refers to this in Colossians 1.27 as the hope of glory that we have in Christ. And what exactly is that hope of glory? Jeremiah actually alludes to this in his prophecies, and it's been fulfilled in part. Now, in this day and age anyway, not at the time when he was prophesying. Through Jeremiah, God promised to his people that he would give them new hearts, that he would take his law and he would write it on their hearts, that we would walk closely with him and he with us, and that we would experience life as God intended it. Here's what he says through Jeremiah in chapter 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Israel, that southern kingdom of Judah that Jeremiah was prophesying to, would look forward in hope to the fulfillment of that promise. But you and I, if you're a Christian here today, live in the fulfillment of that promise. We are the new covenant people that God has created in Christ. He's given us new hearts through Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit in us. What they looked forward to, you and I have experienced the fruition of, that coming to fruition. And all of us who are in Christ here today can find ways to testify to how our lives have been changed and transformed by the grace of God alone. Amen? And yet all of us who are in Christ also realize and yearn for more to come. Because there are some days when our hearts still resist God's law. And there are some days when we still question who God is. Because the full reality that Jeremiah depicted here has not yet come to pass and won't until Jesus returns. But because of who God is and his faithful track record, we can trust that that hope is sure, that he will bring it to full fruition. 
And then that brings us to our, our last point, just a minute or two here, talking about what is this going to result in? What is the fruit that comes from cultivating hope that will be seen in our lives? And I want to just read Paul's words uh, in Romans 8, to 25. And the context here is talking about hope, and he'll name that fruit that will be a marker in our lives of that hope. He says, for we, do not, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation longs for something more than what we currently have and experience with God. And he goes on to say, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. Patience. To come full circle, waiting well. Patience in particular in the valleys of life. The trials, the tribulations, the dark moments of our life. That is the fruit that hope will yield. But experientially, here's what that's like. It doesn't mean that magically then you float through your experiences of hardship without feeling any of it. It means that against all odds, you'll find that you have an anchor beyond your circumstances that keeps you going. Trusting God in the midst of your circumstances in which you would have no other reason to move forward. Now, from the outside, it may look to a watching world like there's something different in you that drives you in the midst of those circumstances. Something different than the quick fixes for pain that the world offers. Something that transcends all that. That's what will be seen by a watching world. It won't necessarily be what's felt by us. On the inside, it may feel like death sometimes. But hope in Christ keeps you going. And hope in Christ will see you through to the glory that awaits you and I in him. Without that hope, we would be crushed under the weight of our sin and our circumstances. But we're not. That's a credit to God. The author of Hebrews testifies to this in chapter 10, verse 39, which we read and talked about recently. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere uh, and preserve their souls. And then in Hebrews 11, verse 1, the next verse, he tells us what fuels that faith. And he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the reason that that hope can be sure is not based upon our circumstances. It's not based upon who has the most convincing arguments or apologetics for the meaning of life. It's based upon knowing a person who's revealed himself most fully in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, he's demonstrated to us most fully that he is a God who is willing to save, able to save, and faithful to save. That is why we as Christians have hope. Would you pray with me? Father, work in our hearts today, I pray, to renew a sense of hope, not a worldly hope that's based on circumstances changing. Though, Lord, I pray that where burdens feel too heavy to bear, your people here today would know you coming alongside them and bearing those burdens. But a hope that transcends our circumstances, that's rooted in knowing you. So Lord, we can't do that 
apart from putting ourselves in a position for you to do the work of changing our hearts, of opening our eyes to see you for the trustworthy, faithful God you are who is willing to save and able to save. Do that this morning. And if there's anyone here who has not received your mercy before, may they not wait, Lord. May you compel them by your Holy Spirit to respond to your invitation to receive your steadfast love and your mercies which never end and which are new every morning. And to do that through accepting Christ, through receiving Jesus as their Savior and their Lord this morning. Would you do that, Father, by the power of your Spirit? We pray this so that your name would be glorified and so that your people would know joy in you. Amen.